Hello and welcome to Creative Forces. This is the first episode of Creative Forces in 2019. I'm re- actually recording this on New Year's Day. had a very relaxing New Year's Eve where I did absolutely nothing, but a very nice and uh, again relaxing New Year's Day. Uh, just went out and about and enjoyed a day in the very nice wintry sunshine uh, with my wife and son. You can't beat that really, can you? So, um, first episode of 2019, just a quick mention of 2018. It's been incredible since the launch in March of the podcast. 26,000 plus listens and downloads. That's uh, 26,000 more than I thought there would be. So, delighted with that. Thank you to everyone who's listened. Really uh, appreciate your involvement and your support of the podcast. If you would like to review it or like it, on any of the social media platforms i'd be very grateful if you could any of the podcast platforms i mean um and if you could leave any reviews anywhere if you could do anything that would help to to raise its profile be really grateful the other thing you could do if you're feeling really generous in 2019 is go to the patreon page which i've set up now for the podcast which means you can donate a small amount each month you get some rewards so that you get something for your money and you'll also help me uh to keep producing the podcast and keep getting the improving the quality, improving the podcast, improving the output. And so, please, if you want to do that, I'd be really grateful. Um, so, first episode of 2019, I thought it'd be nice to have a look back at some of the best of the episodes uh, from last year, particularly the episodes from 11 uh, to 18. So, the first one uh, is record producer Steve Levine famously produced Culture Club, lots of other bands in the 80s, 90s, and still going strong today from his studio in Liverpool. We had a great um, chat about his the way that his career has developed, uh, particularly in, around electronic music and the introduction of synthesizers, sequences in the 80s. Uh, and one of the things he told me all about, which was really interesting, was about his friendship, his enduring friendship uh, with Boy George. So George and I have remained friends and are super friends to this day interestingly we did an interview together recently um you know six or seven months ago for when we were doing some stuff for the bbc and it was interesting he said and i think this is true as we've got older we've become even closer friends and we also now realize what we brought to the party Hmm. in a way that perhaps the hubris of youth didn't but it's fair to say that one of the great great things that george has and i mean george has been seen on many television programs and radio interviews so people listening to this will understand what i mean whether george is on the one show or he's on breakfast tv or he's on the news or he's just on the radio he's incredibly entertaining Mm -hmm. he also has the ability to fill the room with his presence and that was available from the first second i met him when he then exits the room the room is less Mm. He had that then, and he has it now. And in fact, he has it more so now, because what's so lovely about George is that he's a worldwide icon, that whether you're, I don't know, five years old to 90, most people know who he is. Mm. You could stand in the middle of the desert, and if you, you know, if some nomad came up to you and you said, boy, George, they probably know what you meant, which is quite rare. There's not that many artists in the world. I mean, maybe Madonna, Paul McCartney, there's a few, but Mm. I put George up there. And what was that like then? I mean, did you know, as I said then, did you you know how good he was when you first met him? 
I got a feeling for it because I've been doing so many things with so many different people that sometimes it's the bleeding obvious. It just felt really good. It was like we all had the same love of the same tracks be it reggae, be it soul, be it David Bowie. Those, we're all the same age, within a couple of years of each other. John's the oldest, I think he's two years older than me, and George is two years younger than me. So I'm, we're all roughly the same age. Mm. So we all grew up listening to pretty much the same music and have overlaps of jazz, soul, funk, you know, different overlaps. But it meant that this was the Culture Club melting pot of sounds. Every record we loved, every record we used as a reference, we loved and we just had the same understanding. And then when we had the initial success of D Really, it gave us this kind of the the additional gravitas to to make the records even better. So even as early as the second single, once D Really was a hit, which has synth strings on it, now of course they sound really cool now, but mm. they were only synth strings because that's all we had. <laughs> But when we did Time, I said, I want real strings on this. And we got real strings. So mm. the strings on Time and on any track that we wanted thereafter, we had the choice, synth strings or real strings. It was a creative decision, not a financial decision. It must have been a crazy time then, because it was they were huge hits, weren't they? They were massive. So I think one of the ways of really describing how mad it was at that moment and how chaotic was when D really went to number one, we were in... Edinburgh at the time. We were just still on tour and we'd been on tour for quite a while. And I was on tour with the band doing the sound because in those days, most of the venues were fairly small. They were getting bigger as the tour progressed and certainly as the record was going up the charts, they were adding more dates or bigger venues. So sometimes we did two nights at a place. But I really wanted the sound to be as close to the record as possible because mm. many people hadn't seen the band. They'd only done a few gigs up until that point in London. And so I really wanted, if your experience of the band is the record, I want that to sound like that live, which is why I went on tour with them. And we were ready to go to the next venue. And George said to me, oh, I need some more pants, <laughs> underpants for the Americans. <laughs> I said, well, I'll come with you down to Princess Street and we'll go to whatever the thing is there. It's like, was it House of Fraser or John? It wasn't John Lewis, but mm. the equivalent of John Lewis. I think it was yeah. House of Fraser or something. So we walked down from the hotel, just walked down the pair of us. Now, George didn't even have any makeup on, but he did have the, the hair and the coat. And we paid for the pants and we got mobbed in the shop, literally mobbed. And as he recalls, we got chased out of the shop and we literally had to run out of the shop, jump in a cab and go the few yards to the hotel. It was madness. And then from Edinburgh, we went to the next gigs. And a few days later, we had one in Birmingham, which a friend of mine came to. And again, really, really realised the power of the band at that point. We, f we came off stage, got into the van, but the police hadn't opened the back. And that was just those few seconds where they'd realised we were in the van. And the fans all came round the back and mobbed the van to the point at which when you see that black and white footage of the Beatles in those vans it was like that it was so frightening because they were rocking the van <laughs> and we couldn't drive and that was the time when George started to really freak out and went <gasps> you know and you just didn't realize how many people were following the band and most of them were dressed like George mm. it was he had a huge following didn't he I remember mm. it well you know it was it was a huge phenomenon for a couple of years wasn't mm. it the culture club and boy George mm. particularly was such mm. a larger-than-life character, and a lot of people didn't know what to make of him, did mm. they? But I think when they heard him, they realised what a lovely voice he had. Mm. 
and then we were lucky we had some very good early wins with certain tv shows and george was on there and very popular and i mm. think warmed to people instantly but that's how he is and he's only got better as time has gone on in episode 17, I spoke to the amazing Dr. Sue Black, and she told me her phenomenal life story uh, about leaving home at 16, about becoming a single mum, and the way that she really pushed herself to achieve what she's achieved today. Uh, she's done all sorts, too much to list here. You can hear it in the full interview. But in uh, her interview that she gave to me, she talked to me uh, at one point about that decision to leave home at 16. And what she did in those first few years after she did so. I sort of come from an average family, but my mum died when I was 12. And then my dad remarried possibly too quickly. And so I kind of went from from being, you know, like an average, averagely happy person, bobbing mm. along to a very unhappy, possibly depressed person mm. um, living in the sort of new marriage environment which basically was a bit dysfunctional so you know I wasn't happy at home and yeah I started not doing very well at school I was okay but I was just kind of like scraping through stuff really um and too depressed really to enjoy anything much to be honest mm. um and so I um as soon as I was 16 I left home so I moved in with my uh friend Kate's family uh, who lived around the corner from where we lived we were both waitresses in the cafe down the road and um, she said her mum took in lodgers. So I went round to have a chat with her mum and uh, she agreed that I could move in. So that was great. Mm. Um, managed to to leave home. And so then I had to pay rent because Kate's family weren't rich. So I um, worked, I think, one full day at the weekend in the cafe and three evenings a week. Um, but also I um, I passed 11 plus. I went to grammar school, which was 25 miles away. Mm. So, you know, I had to get up quite early in the morning, go to school, come back, go straight to work three evenings a week and um, work in the evening in the cafe, then come back home. And then part of the deal with me paying a very low rent was that um, I did all the washing up because before before the days of when everyone had a dishwasher. Um, so I had to do all the washing up for about 10 or 12 people when I got home, which is probably about 11 o'clock at night. Um, and then, you know, and then once I'd done that, it was time to do my homework. But of course, I was too tired. So, you know, I just got behind with everything. I started falling asleep at school in the sixth form common room. And after about a term and a half, I just thought I, I'm not going to get I'd started A-levels. I'm not going to get any A-levels, am I? You know, I just kind of came to this realisation that um, it wasn't working. So I thought, well, I might as well go out, try and get a job now and then see if I can go back to school later on and get some qualifications. Mm. What well, I guess in the end is is what I did. Okay, so you did start um, your A-levels, but you decided it was just yeah. too much at that point. Yeah, I, w I wouldn't have passed, mm. you know, like the, um, the exams, I wouldn't have passed it. So, yeah. Just because life was too sort of chaotic at that time you mean or too, you were yeah, too well, busy yeah I mean the thing is I was very happy there so like I left home I was ridiculously happy I can mm. remember um saying I felt like I was on a permanent holiday that's how it felt because I was just so happy after leaving home mm. um you know going from kind of having beans on toast every single weekday for five years <laughs> for dinner uh to lovely home-cooked food that's just one example of how much better it was not not being bullied you know not mm. none of these sort of emotional I don't know what you call it, cruelty, stuff mm. that was going on at home and a bit of physical cruelty. It just, yeah, it wasn't a great environment. So, um, yeah, I was just really, really happy. But I had so much that I had to kind of do in my life that I, I just, 
I just knew that I wasn't going to pass my exams. I was just mm. too tired to do all my schoolwork, really, and work part-time and go to school so far away. It just, uh, yeah. it wasn't working out. And was this, this was in Fareham near Portsmouth, is that right? That's where, is that where you No, 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 Fareham is where I was born, but we lived ah. in Hampshire till I was six. Then we I moved see. to Hertfordshire, then we moved to Essex. So it was actually in um, Burnham on Crouch in Essex. Right, okay. Okay. And so what you then thought, okay, right, I'm not going to do these A-levels. I need to go and work. So what did you end up yeah. doing then? Um, I got a job with the local council, so Essex County Council in Chelmsford, working in the education department as a clerical assistant. And yeah, I didn't really like it very much. So I'd kind of gone from trying to do A-levels, which were quite hard, to then having a job where, which was basically filing. So putting things in alphabetical order. And, and I used to um, joke that um, I could have done that job before I went to school because I could read and knew my alphabet when I was four. Mm. So why did I bother going to school for 11 years to mm. do a job that I could have done when I was four? So, um, yeah, it just, you know, it wasn't intellectually stimulating, I suppose. Mm. And so I did it for a few months, but then I was just like, I just can't do this forever, you know. Um, so I, um, I actually went over the road to the career centre and mm. did – uh, like a uh, answered a questionnaire thing and, and they said oh you've got these options blah 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 or you could um, sign up to do to community service volunteers uh, which were based in um, Pentonville Road in London so I thought well that sounds interesting I'll go and volunteer and like see see what happens mm. so I went along for an interview and they accepted me and placed me in High Street Kensington at um kensington barracks it was then it's been knocked down now but it was an old army barracks where um there were 200 refugees from vietnam uh living and they wanted someone to run the crash for the younger kids while mm. the parents went to english lessons so hmm. basically moved moved to high street ken which was quite different to the world yeah. of Essex. <laughs> and um yeah so i just loved it i mean I'd, i kind of wanted to move to london anyway so it, it worked out really well and uh yeah i just found it so exciting um yeah after living somewhere that's you know reasonably remote to be right basically almost in the middle of london with so much you know mm. something going on all the time um and uh yeah i enjoyed working with the kids as well i started learning vietnamese a bit and uh really enjoyed it i had a great time there that must have been yeah quite a change of pace from where you were before to, to yeah doing, to doing uh, yeah that. almost opposite yeah <laughs> opposite pace yeah, yeah. in episode 16 uh, drummer simon allen told me all about his uh, brilliant career in music and all the other stuff he does um, it's really funny stuff. I really enjoyed talking to Simon at his house uh, in Leeds. It's a, one of my favourite interviews that I've done, partly because also, you know, he's one of my musical heroes. New Master Sounds are a band I've loved for years and years, and we actually had a jam afterwards, which was a real highlight of my year last year. And in this section of the interview you're about to hear, he tells me about how his band, the New Master Sounds, got started. Dan and I had been kind of musical husband and wife for the first couple of years of, of being at university and we'd mm. been in bands together and then Dan had met Eddie and joined his band and I was I felt like a spurned lover <laughs> and Dan would go off and do gigs and this was for the first time when I wasn't doing the gigs with him and I knew there was a, a, a music college drummer and I was thinking oh, I don't stand a chance then and then one day Dan came back and said oh I've been talking to Eddie and he says that he really wants 
a shit drummer, <laughs> a, bit, a bit like a bit like he wanted a shit bass player. Yeah, because <laughs> he's hearing too much schooling from these music college players. Yeah, they, they they're just a bit too fancy. Yeah, and he wants something that's raw. And I went, oh, <laughs> my lord, I, 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 I know, yes, I, Percy, I want you. I know just the shit drummer. <laughs> yeah, um, so, uh, so he said, so anyway, um, Eddie's going to come round and we'll just have a little jam to see if he likes your style. And we had a jam and he apparently did like the style and he, he said in his usual <laughs> arrogant way, yeah, okay, I can work with that, can, yeah. <laughs> Mold, mold you. He, he, it's funny, Eddie. I think of him as as kind of gruff northerner. He's he's Welsh, <laughs> right. but when he came to Leeds at age eighteen, he'd had his entire education in the Welsh language as well. Right, and his name's Cadair Dick. Right, and uh, nobody understood a word he said and or or his name, so he had to rename himself Eddie. And he's very adaptable. And I think after a, a short while, he started to sound like he was from Manchester. Right which is sort of geographically between yes. Wales and Leeds. So yeah. he was morph- morphing his... So, so he could be understood. Now he lives in the States and he has a semi-American accent. <laughs> right. um, but it, it's, a, it's a good strategy for being understood anyway. Yeah. Uh, where, where, so he... So we had this little audition and I passed the test and that, that's when the three of us started playing together hmm. and making music. And we had a band which we called The Master Sounds. Yeah because we didn't know that was already the name of a band because <laughs> the internet hadn't been invented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and that we, we made, I think one seven inch single recording and that was with Sam Bell on congas. And Sam was the guest percussionist on our latest record, which is called renewable energy. Yeah. Uh, so we still have, a, I, I don't see him very often, but we still have a relationship with him and he's just texted me to say he can do our gig in Leeds on the 21st which may have already happened when you're listening to yeah, this that's podcast. True, yeah. uh, so that's the 21st of yeah, September, yeah, 2018, yeah, yeah. For, few, for reference. That's in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you met Eddie and he liked your style. Yeah. And then how long was it then be- be- when you got that One Note Brown single and then what happened after that? Well, hang on. Um, is that the right chronology? No, no sorry. It- no, One Note Brown is new Master Sounds. That's right. Yeah, God, I can bet, hardly remember. And so nobody except you or I will care about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we did two years as the Master Sounds. Yeah. And this very dry sounding band because it was bass, guitar, congas and drums. So not very much harmony. But the way Eddie plays guitar, it's almost like two guitarists yeah. anyway. Because he plays rhythm, lead and riffs and... Did he have a very sort of clear direction at that point about where he wanted things to go? Or was it a collaborative thing? Uh, he was definitely in charge. And I, I sort of have always looked at it as a kind of benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> um, but uh, Sam and Dan were both, um, I think, a bit, uh, well, significantly more independently creative and ambitious, which is why they no longer work with Eddie. Hmm. Because they didn't really like taking instruction from him or, or it was more that they had their, their own things to say. So yeah. they moved on. Yeah. Whereas I've always been very grateful for some leadership. <laughs> um, Happy to it, take direction. Yeah. I'm a, cl- a collaborator. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rather than an auteur. I would say. 
So yeah, so you were doing a couple of years as the master sounds, and then when did the sw- when did you realise that the master sounds was taken? Um, not until uh, Sam and Dan had moved on and decided to do other projects, leaving me and Eddie with this sense that we did want to carry on working together. Hmm. So our job was to find a bass player and a, an organist, and when we did, which was Pete Shand and Bob Birch, um, we thought, okay, well we should. The sensible thing would be to call it the new Master Sounds. Yeah. And it was around about the same time that somebody pointed out that the Master Sounds was, um, where's Montgomery's brother's band? What's his name? I can't remember. Like Chip or Butch or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and somebody produced an LP, which clearly clearly was... um, that was the name of the band rather than the name of the album. Mm. And Eddie claimed he'd always thought it was the name of an album. Mm. And it's entirely okay to name your band after somebody else's album, right. I think. Okay. <laughs> According to the rock and roll protocols. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, the Deacon Blue named themselves after a song, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Was that which, uh, Steely Dan? Yeah. Which is called Deacon Blues, I think. Uh, but that's the only example that comes to mind mm. of something of that nature. Let's carry on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, oh, uh, yeah. So we, so it, it was a happy coincidence that we needed to rename the band anyway because it was a different lineup and a, and we we were taking it in a new direction, mm. a new direction that was based on the music of the Meters. Yes. Because we realised, oh, uh, if we've got organ, then this is the same lineup of, that's making that that's coming from that sound. But all we knew about the Meters at the time was what was on a cassette that some DJs had made for Eddie. And uh, we really liked it, and we found that the the sound that the four of us made, naturally, mm. was had something in common with it. The, the, the rawness of it, the, 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 the unschooled sound, mm. I think, um, there was something about it that made it feel that it was appropriate for us to go down that road. In episode 11... Paul Blanchard, the PR guru, he told me all about his amazing career. It's uh, had a fair few twists and turns. It's really worth listening to if you get the chance. Uh, He's done all sorts of stuff, but he's really found his niche now uh, doing PR for, you know, chief executives, bosses, and does a very good job at it too. And um, in our interview, he told me all about an amazing incident in his life which completely changed his diet forever. It involved a lobster, involved his mum, and it involved France. Have a listen. I um, was I was a meat eater till I was about uh, twenty five. Um, I gave no thought to animal welfare whatsoever. Um, I took my mum to Nice for like a weekend away, um, and we we got a, like a nice hotel, and I thought we'll have some nice meals and so on. It was I think it was a birthday or something, and we were in a restaurant, and there was. The waiter came up and he had um, a tray full of ice on it and there was three lobsters uh, on it. And I was just, I don't know why I was so naive because I'd seen lobsters before, but they had their, the first thing I noticed about them is they had uh, rubber bands around their pincers. Mm. And I, I thought, why is that? And then I realized that they were alive um, and they were moving. And the, the waiter was like, oh, eat, you know, do you want one of these? They're juicy and they're really flavorful and so on. And uh, oh, my mum said, uh, oh, yeah, I'll have that one and mm. so on. And I was just profoundly struck in that moment of the sheer injustice of that that lobster. Mm. Um, it, I, I'll never get over it. I 
I just knew then for me that eating meat was wrong uh, or eating anything that, you know, was alive. And I said to my mum, I said, mum, I've, I've just turned vegetarian. <laughs> and she laughed it off, you know, because it was just, it was so random. It's mm. out of the blue. Um, she said, oh, don't be silly. <laughs> and I said, no, I have mum. Anyway, so I was, she thought I was going to be vegetarian for a few days. And then, you know, that was it. But I, I have not eaten meat in you know, 20 odd years mm. since then. I haven't. I, well, I've eaten meat accidentally, of course, because mm. some of this fake meat is so real that when you accidentally serve, re- it tastes, looks and tastes so real mm. that when you are sometimes accidentally served real meat, you actually think it is corn. <laughs> um, and it actually turns out that it was beef, but mm. I've never knowingly done that. Uh, yeah. And then about five or six years later, I went vegan mm. um, because my first ever chief executive client was um um, a, a CEO of an animal welfare charity uh, called Philip Limbury's, mm. a very good friend of mine still, and he runs Compassion in World Farming. And um, they campaign against factory farming and things like that. And, you know, when you've seen so many of these kind of animal welfare videos, you, en- you end up, you know, you can't, you can't unsee them, really. So for me, it just became, it just became obvious. So I think, I, I think my mum's glad now because... She considers sort of veganism a kind of extreme diet, and mm. there isn't there isn't anything more extreme than. I haven't said that. She read an article in the Daily Mail the other day about fruitarians, and <laughs> she thinks that I'm going to. And then there's that one, isn't it, where they nick the food from the back of the bins around Marks and Spencers because they don't want to contribute to. <laughs> Well, they're called freegans, aren't they? That's, That's right. Yeah, She's like, are you going to go freegan next, son? <laughs> no, I'm not. Is that her greatest fear? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Look, my office is in Soho. There's about <laughs> 10 vegetarian restaurants within 60 seconds walking distance here. I'm in the right place. Yeah, so you're but, all right. Uh, so then, yeah, so, I mean, sorry, Karen, Go on, please. go on. I was going to say, yeah, so it's fascinating to kind of talk about this kind of thing. But ultimately, I think all it's all led to where I am now, really, mm. which is, uh, you know, I, I enjoy the mix of being my own boss. I like the intrigue and the privilege of working with like chief executives. I am fascinated by the media um, and it kind of all different aspects of my life feed into each other, really. I mm. mean, you know, I, I love my podcast, but it, although it, it costs me money, it actually really helps my business because it builds my network and, you know, the Americans love it, that it's kind of evidence, you know, they, they often say, well, who do you know? You know, who, mm. you know, do you, do you know the editor of Harvard Business Review? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Here <laughs> she is on the podcast. Do you know what I mean? So it does build the network. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, working in the media and being a consumer of the media, I enjoy the kind of um, working to place people. I, I mean, as, as, as we said before, this <laughs> started, I actually got someone on Wake Up to Money uh, <laughs> earlier. <laughs> and and that's, that's good. I like doing that because I, I feel, you know, that's your, your big guy as the journalist mm. is the ultimate arbiter. I think the reality that the relationship between a PR person and the journalist is actually the most truthful because if you say you'll have someone on Wake Up to Money, you're not going to ruin your reputation or do a disservice to your listeners mm. if you if by having someone who's not going to be a good guest. So ultimately, the binary decision is: is do you want that person on your show or not? And to me, it, it boils down to that truthful relationship that you don't you don't have to kind of you know bullshit me mm. and say oh he is a great guy because ultimately you're either going to have him on or you're not and you're only going to have him on if it's going to drive value for your listeners mm. uh, so i quite like that because when you when you get you know when you get a client who's happy and you get the journalist or the producer that's happy mm. i think that's great there's no better feeling than mm. it in episode 18 i spoke to dr felice gersh uh, in california now she's a 
award-winning obstetrician, gynecologist, and a fascinating woman who's built an incredible career uh, in the US. And one of the amazing, you know, it's a long interview, it's a really fascinating interview, really loved talking to her. She had so much to say and she was so interesting on so many topics. And I would highly recommend you listen back to that in full interview. But in this section, uh, she tells me all about how important her family were um, to her choice of career and the values that she took all the way, she's taken all the way through her life. Well, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up on the outskirts of, of New York City, right right on the, the, the line of New York City and Nassau County on Long Island. So I mm. grew up in a, a town called Great Neck. Mm. And um, I was just there this past weekend visiting my mom's sister, who still lives there in the same house that she lived in since the, the mid-1950s. Mm. And um, it's a, a lovely place. And so I still... I'm very much a New Yorker, even though I've been away from New York for for a very long time. Mm. But that's where my roots were. And then I went to college in New Jersey at Princeton University. And uh, and it was after college that I came out to California and I went to the University of Southern California School of Medicine. And I didn't plan on living the rest of my life in California (laughs) or setting up a practice here but I kind of got used to it. And uh, I ended up staying in California and I've been here ever since. And when I moved from Los Angeles, which is where USC medical school is Mm. in Los Angeles, um, when I finished, um, well, I did my medical school and then I did my residency also in, in Hollywood area of, of the LA area. Mm. And then when I decided I would go into practice, I looked at all the areas. And at that time, Orange County was like, the new frontier <laughs> like mm-hmm. people when i said i'm going to move to orange county they said oh my gosh that's like the boonies like what are you gonna do like there's like you know it's what like does that primitive. mean the boonies <laughs> you know? oh that's a that's phrase i'm not familiar orange. with yeah that's like you know like you know that's uh like almost like primitive right. you're going to orange county now it's like one it's just one giant urban center after another you mm. know the whole it's a continuum from Orange County all the way into Los Angeles of mm. just construction. And when I first came to Irvine, there was uh, there were very few people here. And um, it was like, I think, under 60,000 in the whole place. And now it's like like around 300,000. Mm. So um, and the city of Irvine is one of the biggest employers. It's full of high tech um, companies. So it's it's a very metropolitan area now. But when I came, it was filled with um, orange groves and strawberry <laughs> fields. And down the street where we bought a house, there were cows grazing. <laughs> and it's, it's, there are no cows grazing anywhere. And there are no <laughs> strawberry fields. That's all gone. So what was life like for you and your family and Great Neck? Well, I lived with my mom and my dad. And I had two brothers and a cat. <laughs> and we lived in what... Um, it's called a split level house. I don't know if you have those in, in England. Yeah. Uh, so when you walk in the front door, um, you're on the main level that has a kitchen, dining room and living room. And then you walk up a few steps. It's like a half a flight. Okay. And that's where the bedrooms are. And then you can walk down like a half a flight. And that's um, actually where the family room would be. But my parents changed the house. They bought it brand new and before it was built and they modified it. So that my so that my grandparents, my mom's mom and dad, 
um, could live in the house with us. So they created actually an apartment mm. uh, on the lower level of the split level house. And my my grandmother and my grandfather lived there. And the reason that happened is, and this is very sad, my grandfather, my mom's dad, who is a brilliant lawyer, just incredible, brilliant, he had what we call malignant hypertension. Mm. His blood pressure went sky high. And at that time, there were no drugs whatsoever. So I'm not against drugs. I just don't see them as the the ticket to health for everything under the sun. Mm. But there was nothing that could help him. They went all around. They went to Duke. They put him on what's called the rice diet. They did everything they could to try to lower his blood pressure, but they couldn't. And then he had a massive stroke. Mm. So it was a terrible situation, and he couldn't work. He was only 49. And... Mm. um, so that's why they moved in with my mom and her family, which included me. <clears throat> but it was quite a treat for me um, to have my grandparents live with me. And unfortunately, my, my grandfather ended up having a heart attack not too long after. And so he had a, a very sad, you know, shortcut life, you know, from having this malignant hypertension. And my grandmother, you know, stayed there and lived with us. And, and so I would actually say... I'm going to grandma's house. Right. <laughs> All I did was walk. I would walk down five stairs. And I would be in. I would be in grandma's house, and um, she made all of. Um, so we were um, a Jewish family, mm. and so she would make all of these Jewish dishes um, that, um, and she would have, light the candles on Friday nights, and and it was just a wonderful thing to grow up with my grandma down at grandma's house, mm. five stairs down, and. Um, and she went on vacations with us, and um, both of my parents were lawyers. My mom mm. was a very um, early, groundbreaking kind of a woman lawyer. When she went to law school, she went to Brooklyn Law School, very few women were in law, very few. And she was a brilliant lawyer. She was a litigator. Mm. If she hadn't decided, I feel sure in my mind, if she hadn't decided to be um, a mom and only a part-time attorney, she could have been on the Supreme Court. She was that mm. brilliant. But she she made the sacrifice, like a lot of women do, to take care of her three kids mm. and um, only practice law part-time. And uh, she encouraged me, as did my father, to be anything I wanted that, you know, there was, there was no, there were no barriers for me. And, mm. and when I, I lived during the time when the word feminism was first um, created, mm-hmm. there was no feminism in, until like around 1970. And that was the year when I graduated high school mm. and I became like an early feminist. And I, um, you know, my mom was really an early feminist and she said, you know, women can do anything. Women can break down barriers. You can do whatever you want. And so when I went to Princeton University, I was actually in the first class that was all, um, that was co-ed. Before that, it was um, only a a man's school. And um, I actually had to fight to get a summer job there as a mail carrier because (laughs) they said, no, um, girls, women cannot be mail carriers. That is a man's job. You can be, you can be a receptionist. And I said, I don't want to be a receptionist. I want to be a mail carrier. And um, I actually had to fight them. We um, Ultimately, I prevailed. And they actually had a story with a picture of me carrying my mail bag um, <laughs> um, that was put in like the, uh, 
the Daily News in the newspaper in New York, you know, that, mm. you know, female beats Princeton and gets job as mail carrier. <laughs> Finally, in episode 12, I spoke to Jason Wingard. Now, Jason is a multi-award winning filmmaker, writer, director. He brought out uh, the critically acclaimed comedy Eaten by Lions in 2018, starring uh, Jack Carroll, Antonio Akeel and Johnny Vegas. He's gone on to have a really nice bit of success this year. And his was a brilliant interview because he's got an amazing story. Ex-professional footballer, then a stand-up comedian now a writer and director and in what was a f- sort of freewheeling and very entertaining discussion we talked about all sorts of stuff including what it was like for him and how he felt when he decided at a relatively early age that he was he had to leave his career in professional football behind well it's a tricky time and you start but you know you start to f- figure things out don't you for yourself you need to earn money and you figure out what the the, the deal was so at the time I was just kind of like I was kind of working I was on the dole for a little bit and that was actually kind of like I think a valuable part of our um our system I think that you know it's kind of people are knocked aren't they for being on the dole but lots of people who were kind of artists at some point or other have had to lean on support from somewhere at some point you know uh, so I think it was a, a good thing. I don't know what it's like now, but it's mm. absolutely horrendous now. To if you're kind of trying to, to 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 kind of like say that you're I'm a musician and yeah. try and sign on, you know, be you'd be in a factory biting perforations in stamps <laughs> for in no time. I think there's a lot more pressure now, isn't yeah. there, to get a job? Yeah. Yeah, very so quickly. Individually wrapping baked beans somewhere. <laughs> you know, like, oh, this would be fantastic. Um, but yeah, you know, I think yeah, uh, yeah. So, but the, so at the time, I was kind of I had a like three or four year period when I was just coaching part time. I didn't. I was in and out of different jobs, and I think that one of the good things about knowing what you do want to do is also kind of knowing exactly what you don't want to mm. do. You know, I, what I, were I, the jobs are you doing then? I, I did a I did a year at cable and wireless, um, selling like phone systems to people it was like start at 12 and you finished at eight and the money was quite good and and i just hated it <laughs> i mean i absolutely hated it but it's not it, it it's another kind of i felt completely caged in that environment you know i just could not for the life of me understand what people got out of this you know hmm. and i think that was the one year of my life where i was like you know just really quite depressed so those call center jobs uh have become like the you know the workhouses of mm. <laughs> the 20th century i think they're awful i mean alan carr who was a com- obviously a big comedian isn't he mm. I mean, he used to live around here and he used to work at a call center he'd tell me about it <laughs> and he used to tell me about this old woman who lived there you know worked at a call center for so long that skin and hair had grown over a headset <laughs> which always was quite funny yeah. so do you know him from the comedy days then? i knew him from the comedy days yeah so kind of like by that point you know the faster i started to do stand-up comedy and i was getting paid little bits and pieces of money you know it's mm. a bit of like a gypsy p- profession but there were, at the time there was lots of clubs in and around manchester so i started at the frog and bucket in manchester mm. And there was a comedian called Tony Burgess and Alex Boardman who I was kind of gigging with. And then we'd see people come through. Johnny Vegas started to do his first gigs up in and around Manchester. Mm. John Bishop came through uh, at the time. Chris Addison was coming through and Dave Gorman. And really bright, clever, 
comics, really good comics. I was very limited in what I could do, but I liked hanging out with those guys. And What was it like, you know, putting together your first sort of routine? That was easier, actually, because you've got nothing to lose. And then it goes well, and you think, okay, this is good. And then you start to, someone goes, oh, do you want to do a paid gig? And you're Mm. like, great, you know. Mm. And you do a few paid gigs. And then I think you've got to keep pushing and, and keep changing your act. Justin Morehouse was interesting because Justin, when he first started, you know, he wasn't a very good actor, but he'd, he'd worked and worked for a year. By the end of a year, he started to be a good comic, and now he's a superb comic, mm-hmm. you know. And so it, he really grafted at it. He really wanted it, you know. And I think that actually the mentality he had was almost like a footballer's mentality, you know, somebody with... Uh, you'd have somebody who you could see really wanted to, to yeah. play. Yeah. He's the Gary Neville of comedians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably like that analogy as well. Well, maybe not. He probably would be Ronaldo. But yeah. I think uh, he worked really hard. I admired that. I thought that was, you know, re- really good. Mick Ferry is another one who I thought really worked hard as well too, mm. you know. And now they're, they're, they'll probably take it for granted because they're really gifted comics, you know. Uh and you know, and I, I knew that I was never going to be there. So why did you? How? Did, what made you feel that? Um, well, I, I, I bumped. I did this film recently with Johnny Vegas. And I told him that he was the reason I quit, and he probably was one of the reasons because I went and saw him once, and he was just had a freedom, and he stood on a table as like this, this table here, and it's wobbling. You know, it's it a very small sort of side yeah, table. Yeah, it's like, and the legs are giving way, and he's shouting at people <laughs> and screaming, and I thought this guys completely this is a bit like watching you know a, a drunk in a pub wander around and people going please don't talk to me but in a comedy club because yeah. his act in the early days was pretty wild wasn't it, it? Was, he was wild but he, he was brilliant it yeah. was it, he was he appeared to be very drunk didn't he, he appeared to be drunk sometimes he was sometimes he wasn't you know and you know uh, uh he's just i thought was as close to a comic genius that i saw that i saw from that particular group there's some very talented comics that that, you know who could do lots of settled punchline but he was johnny's just uh, i think he's special and i said that you know that's what i wanted to be Mm. and there's no way I was going to get anywhere near that. Mm. There's a friend of mine who said to me at one point, he said, there's no room for vanity in comedy. I thought, well, that's me, fuck them. (laughs) 